Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. When you're looking for something to occupy your time, do a web search on the terms walking pet lobster. Now, don't do that right now because I guarantee that you won't hear another word I say this morning. The search is, however, worth your time. Besides seeing lots of pet lobsters being walked, including uh, Homer Simpson walking one, you will encounter reference to the first pet lobster walker, the 19th century novelist and poet Gerard de Nerval, famous for walking his pet lobster in Paris on a silk ribbon. Nerval wrote this, Why should a lobster be any more ridiculous than a dog or a cat or a gazelle or a lion or any other animal that one chooses to take for a walk? I have a liking for lobsters. They are peaceful, serious creatures. They know the secrets of the sea. They don't bark. They don't gobble up your monadic privacy like dogs do. And Goethe had an aversion to dogs, and he wasn't crazy. Now, by the way, a spokesperson at the Lobster Conservancy, who knew, right, says taking a lobster for a walk in the park is cruel and sadistic behavior. Please don't even think about it. Well, myths are just that. And the chances that a poverty-stricken Parisian poet in the 19th century could have kept a lobster alive for any length of time is nil. But the story exemplifies the individuality and individualism that poets have long celebrated in Europe and Europe's many colonies. Epite la bourgeoisie was the rallying cry of Romantic era poets, upset the middle classes. And Nerval was a part of the generation of French, po French poets that included Baudelaire, Berlin, Rimbaud, part of a tradition called the Poète Maudit, or Cursed Poet. This tradition led to the cliché of the lost and lonely poet resisting the straitjacket of middle-class culture madly scribbling in a garret somewhere. And Romanticism was about celebrating human creativity and the mysteries of the unconscious, just as Europe became a vast industrial capitalist zone. However, the artists were not upsetting the middle classes. They were merely romanticizing an individualistic counterculture. You know, April is uh, National Poetry Month here in the United States, and it's a month to celebrate poetry in all of its eerie glory. And as someone who spent most of his life attempting to write poems, and as someone who has struggled against clinical depression most of my life, 
It's not hard to surmise that the idea of a cursed or a lost poet would appeal to me when I was young. Uh, here were all these great poets telling me that mental illness was romantic and artistic. And by the way, that idea has killed more than one person over time, and I will come back to that point. Last week, I was talking about that age-old question kids get asked, what are you going to be when you grow up? I mentioned that the question wasn't asked much where I'm from because the assumption was that the males would either be farmers or coal miners, or probably both of those. The idea of poets, oh, certainly didn't upset the farming classes. We just thought they were silly and useless beings. There was one exception to the career path of farming or coal mining, and that was preaching. The assumption went that the call of the Lord, as we called it, was one exit from all social assumptions. That call reminds me of uh, the most boring preacher I have ever known. And as someone who spent a lot of time in churches, I have heard a lot of boring preaching over time. But this guy still takes the cake. The saying for preachers such as he was among Pentecostals is that he lets the four horsemen of the apocalypse out and can't never get them back in the barn. When the guy preached, everyone knew we were in for a long, long ride of those four horsemen of the apocalypse in that book of Revelation. But he did have one intriguing story, and that was the one about his call to ministry. And he repeated that one, I think, every time he spoke. Among Pentecostal preachers, the call to ministry is a crucial story. And those stories are usually lurid and detailed. His call story wasn't like that, however, and it went like this. One day he was out plowing corn, that is, cultivating the corn after it has come up, as we say, sprouted. It was a hot day, and he pulled up the horses and had them resting in the shade. Suddenly he looked up at the clear blue sky and the clouds up there spelled G-P-C. G-P-C. It hit him. He knew at that moment his call, go preach Christ. Now, behind his back, some parishioners opined that the good Lord don't make no mistakes, as we said. So in his case, the letters must have meant get to plowing corn. Anyway, for the imaginative Pentecostal kids like me, there was this other potential career path preacher. We were taught that each member of the church had a special gift, and that idea was based on a passage in 1 Corinthians in which Paul tells us that each member of the church receives a gift of the Spirit. Quote, For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, divers kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of those tongues. End quote. Wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, 
working of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues. Those were some wondrous ways to become really something in the church. And Paul promised every member of the church a gift of the spirit. I wanted prophecy because those were the preachers and also because the prophets had way cool visions. Um, I don't know if you've ever read this one from Ezekiel, but let me share. And the living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now, as I beheld the living creatures, behold, one wheel upon the earth by the living creatures with its four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their work was like unto the color of a burl. And they four had one likeness, and their appearance and their work was, as it were, of a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, they went upon their four sides, and they turned not when they went. As for their rings, they were so high that they were dreadful and their rings were full of eyes round about them four. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went by them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Whithersoever the spirit was to go, they went. Thither was their spirit to go, and the wheels were lifted up over against them, for the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels." End quote. So, you know, how cool is that? Wouldn't it be cool to have a gift to interpret that kind of vision, I thought as a kid? With passages such as that in 1 Corinthians, Paul was building congregations with this new thing about Christianity. He was creating Christianity out of thin air. Uh, You know, the early Christians had Judaism as a model and they had their so-called pagan traditions. But for the most part, Paul's letters are about how to build a new kind of congregation. The promise that each congregation would have members who received the wonderful gifts of the Spirit, that was heady stuff. And it translated well to the small rural congregations that were the backbone of Pentecostalism when I was a kid. Joining a congregation meant something. God had plans for each of us in that congregation. Now, as he explored ways to create and sustain a humanist congregation, John Dietrich wasn't promising anything quite so miraculous, but he did put it this way, quote, The great word of humanism is that one word, together, in just the measure that we can find something of ourselves in all others and something of all others in ourselves, will we come to share the spirit of humanism, end quote. And and that is the spirit of humanism. Uh, Humanists seek in congregation the spirit of compassion and understanding. It's easy to love people in the abstract. It's hard work, however, to love people who you know and people who may even irritate you at times. We all have our weaknesses, but we also have our strengths. We seek to find something of ourselves in each other and something of each other in ourselves. That's what builds healthy congregations. The work never stops. It's all about becoming all the time. That's what we're about at First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis. 
Uh, you know, we use the term tribes a bit too easily nowadays. Paul's project was to build viable congregations, and one way he did that was to reassure new converts that joining in a congregation meant companionship, belonging, but it meant a whole lot more than that too. One person would speak in tongues and another member of the congregation would be able to interpret those foreign words and explain to everyone in the congregation what all those words meant. How's that for teamwork, right? That was the tribe that Pentecostalism offered as well. But those folks weren't my tribe. I think I always knew that. I never felt comfortable there. The community was a very, very valuable thing, but the way that the community was created was by excluding many, many people, by enforcing conformity on the members. I did, however, find a community eventually in that great tribe of misfits we call poets. But as I said earlier, the tribe of poets was a tribe that existed as a collection of individualists, many of us priding ourselves on our extreme antisocial behaviors like walking pet lobsters through the streets of Paris. Unbeknownst to me, and certainly unbeknownst to my family, I had been learning through reading such things as the book of Ezekiel, what the atheist poet Wallace Stevens called the fictive imagination which produces what Stevens called supreme fiction, meaning writing that is more true than realism, the supreme fiction. So even though I had never met a writer or a poet when I was a kid, I began dreaming of becoming one of those, of joining that tribe of individualists. One of the insights gained in reading literary works poems, stories, and that sort of thing, is that what we call reality is largely subjective in meaning. It's dependent upon our perspective, our point of view. And creative writing, or maybe I should say writing creatively, is not about the subject of a poem or a story or a novel. Writing creatively is about the power of the human imagination, the fictive imagination. The philosopher Hannah Arendt phrased it very well, I think. It, she said this, quote, storytelling reveals meaning without committing the error of defining it, brings about consent and reconciliation with things as they really are, and we may even trust it to contain eventually an implication, that last word which we expect from the day of judgment. That last word being, of course, the entire truth revealed. Storytelling reveals meaning without committing the error of defining it. I really like that as an idea. The writer James Baldwin, Baldwin put it this way, quote, you write in order to change the world, knowing perfectly well that you probably can't, but also knowing that writing is indispensable to the world. The world changes according to the way people see it. And if you alter even by a millimeter the way people look at reality, then you can change it, end quote. For many years, uh, the poets were my preferred tribe. I took comfort in those days uh, from the words of the poet Percy Shelley, 
who call poets the unacknowledged legislators of the race. Yet no one, uh, no matter how individualistic acts such as walking a pet lobster through the streets of Paris is, it was the human beings that I met, those who called themselves poets and artists, and in a community where we actually had coffee and were able to talk. Those relationships were what kept me alive, really, because I was in conversation, sometimes metaphorically, sometimes actually with powerful imaginations, such as James Baldwin. James Baldwin, too, had his Paris and walked in those streets. Uh, he refuged uh, there for many years to escape American racism and homophobia. His assertion of authentic selfhood was much more profound, though, than just walking a lobster through the streets and the parks. I was able to meet Baldwin toward the end of his life. I was young and he was old. His wisdom, the wisdom and the hope that he communicates in lines such as, you write in order to change the world knowing perfectly well that you probably can't. That's the way I felt about our tragically unjust American society. I've been greatly blessed in my life to have worked with geniuses such as Baldwin. I can't forget the pure joy in his laugh that exposed those jagged yellow teeth from a lifetime of smoking cigarettes. James Baldwin was an authentic human being living an authentic life in his body on his terms because he knew the depths of despair. Then he was able to experience pure joy in those moments. Now, since my retirement from the university, I've continued writing poetry. I love doing that. But my central focus has been on how to create humanist community. From the experiences of my youth, I know that congregations can be transformative organizations. Everyone does have a gift to bring. They aren't like those that Paul and the Pentecostals promised, but they are considerably more useful, I think. Uh, things like electrical engineering and web design and social media skills and cooking and transcribing and singing and gardening, and that list of talents goes on and on. Our volunteers are amazingly gifted human beings, bringing the gifts of your spirit into the congregation, into the group. That's the magic. Sharing part of yourself and then experiencing others. That's what First Unitarian Society is all about. We ask people to join, we share together, and we love one another. So may it be. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.